Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. She's heard me saying I love you a thousand times. She never heard me say I'm sorry. And I want you to tell her that, Alan. I want you to tell her that uh, John said that he was sorry. Okay? You got that, man? <laughs> Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film, we explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I am a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. Uh, this is John Roca. I'm a writer, producer, host, VO artist, and burgeoning editor here in uh, San Diego, <laughs> California. Steve and I were having an off-mic discussion about, or off-camera discussion about this, for sure. Um <laughs> You're just, it's just going to destroy your brain. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> the, yeah. the, the worst thing about being an editor is I mentally, like uh, as we're doing the show, I'm mentally yeah. thinking about cuts and things like, you know, oh, I'll move that over there. Or I'll trim that down a little bit or whatever. Right. I also do it when hearing people talk just in normal life. <laughs> in particular, <laughs> my mom, who I oh. adore, is the worst storyteller. She oh, continually really? digress. Like she'll literally do like, so I wanted to tell you about this thing. Now, of course, you know that I'd like to go shopping in the morning. Well, and I like to, um, you know, when your dad was alive. And it's oh, just boy. Like, and it just kind of meanders. And I'm like, and I'm literally mentally imagining the timeline. I'm like, cut that, <laughs> cut that, move that over there, tighten this whole section up. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's been affecting me as I've been doing more of these reactions and reviews, and I'm starting to understand if I need to record them in a certain way so it's easier for me to edit them later. So that's starting to happen in my brain as right. you talk about self-editing. So I'm starting to think, okay, what's a way that I can do this that makes it easier for me to make these quicker? So it's madness. It's absolute mad. What's the what's the line? This way, madness lies or yes. something like that yeah um so, yeah. yeah well it's like one of the things you might you know I, pe people might notice and you've probably noticed is that if i'm gonna get you know i give quotes all the time yeah. as we're going through a movie is i'll frequently say and then john mcclain said yippee motherfucker i'll put that pause in oh, because yeah, it makes it way easier for me to cut in the actual john mcclain right whereas right. if i roll right into it then john mcclain says yippee motherfucker I can't make a cut yeah. in between says and yippee and it gets real. Then I have to do like weird fancy editing to make things work. You know, yeah, well, <laughs> I'm discovering that as well. That weird kind of fancy editing when you're in the middle of a sentence, and you want to cut something in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, what, one of the things you start to learn is we don't actually separate our words. Yes. Usually when we talk, we're actually rolling from one word to another. And yes. so you think you're saying every syllable, but you're really not, mm -hmm. you know, there's all sorts of weird, weird editing things, which we could talk about forever, <laughs> but that's not what this show is, but yeah. that is not what this is about. <laughs> we of course are in part three of die hard, our new exploration. This is one of our early podcasts that people wanted us to redo. And I know both of us are so excited to give yeah. this movie the attention it deserves. And John, yes, 
one of the interesting things that happens in this podcast yeah. is occasionally, sometimes more than occasionally, <laughs> one of us gets something wrong. And in oh. our last episode, I got something wrong. Okay. You 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 were a hundred percent right. Oh. I went back and I looked again at the firing down at the police car as it backs up. Yeah. I said it was John McClain firing. You are right. I was looking again. It is the terrorist. They're firing from like mm. the fourth floor, and John's like on the 30th floor. Yeah. So I was 100% wrong. So thanks for calling me on that. Well, first of all, it's magnanimous of you to even say that on the show. And second of all, I think we can, all of us who are listening, count on our fingers the times you've been wrong uh, compared oh. <laughs> to how many times you've been right in the last four or five years of doing the show. So I think we're all cool with you getting an occasional thing <laughs> wrong. You know? Well, so thank it's, you. it's okay. Maybe I think you got a lot of fingers for five years. No, of me just, being wrong. I, I feel like it's less than 10 that I can recall in my opinion, but, but I, what um, I will yeah. say about it is yeah. I actually think not to excuse me being mistaken. That's not mm. my point. I don't think the storytelling is that great on this moment. Because yeah. Well, we fair. never see a terrorist face. We don't right. see them look and aim at the car. We no. don't know they're on. And so the only thing we see is John McClane smashed through that window yeah. and him holding a machine gun at that window. Right. And so when you see a machine gun aiming out of a window, firing down, that's why I always assumed it was his. And it was, yeah. I had to look carefully to yeah. realize that it's not him. Right. It's you know. different floors and stuff. And you're seeing the, the, the firing coming out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but yes, well, and, and the thing is, I actually, I, I think the best thing is to learn new stuff. So it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's great when people point out like another one, by the way, apparently I multiple times said Reginald Van Johnson instead of Reginald Val Johnson. Oh yeah. <laughs> that is exactly the kind of dumb mistake I hate <laughs> making. Um, so we're going to hopefully, if I say it wrong this time, I hope that you'll call me on it. Yes. And we can get it right. Absolutely. Um, but where we left off, mm -hmm. Ellis was just murdered by Hans while on the radio with John McClane and the entire LA police force listening in. And now John is talking to Al saying, you got to believe me. There was nothing I could do. So let me, I want to interrupt. And I rarely st interrupt Steve early on in a, in a, uh, <laughs> uh, in a, one of these things for a, uh, one of our episodes for a, a um, factoid, but the other night, or actually yesterday, so we're recording this. I woke up a little bit early uh, got went out on the couch, turned on the television, and either TCM or Fox FXM was showing The Detective, mm. which is what oh. Steve had mentioned in the first part, uh, is the uh, first book in the quote-unquote John McClane series. Uh, but, of course, it's a completely different name. It's the actual name from the book. And Sinatra, as Steve said in the first part of this uh, uh, Die Hard Breakdown, is the character that Bruce Willis ends up playing, of course, modifications. Well, one of the actors in the piece, the psychiatrist, is Lloyd Bachner. And he is a significant part of the movie because he is the because the movie is about a guy who uh, kills himself. And you and then there's another murder where a guy's genitals have been ripped off of his body. And this is 1968, ladies and gentlemen. And Sinatra knows his character knows that the guy who is admitting to the murder is unstable. He allows him to admit to the murder, which puts him in the death. He gets killed in the death penalty. But Sinatra gets promoted. He finds out later 
that that guy actually didn't kill the dude uh, who had his genitals ripped off. That was a homosexual. And the guy who killed himself was the guy who killed the guy because the guy was going to threaten to expose him as a homosexual. And he was a married man uh, and an upstanding member of the community. So that's all connected. Lloyd Bachner is the psychiatrist who gets the confession from the guy. Well, who's Lloyd Bachner's son? Hart Bachner, who is Ellis. And I was like, this is incredible that Lloyd. Now, I don't know if you said this already, Steve, so if I forgot the fact that you can cut this whole thing out if you already said it. But Lloyd Bachner is in The Detective and Hart Bachner is in uh, Die Hard. So both Bachner family members were in essentially two, uh, ver- two stories about the same character. It's pretty incredible. Not only did I not know that, but... I can't believe that wasn't somewhere in all the things I looked at because that is amazing. And I think maybe part of it is that so few people actually know about the connection between the detective yeah. and Die Hard. I certainly didn't. Right. But right. wow, that's cool. Does does uh does Lloyd Bachner have like a Coke problem? Or? Not at all. He's a pretty level-headed psychiatrist. And by the way, he showed up in Tony Rome. He showed up in a number of those hmm. in point blank. He showed up in a number of those kind of late 60s noir crime grittier crime detective uh, uh, shows that or films rather that they that the uh, that the that the um, film industry was kind of embracing and changing in their approach which of course leads to the French connection just a couple of years later that wins best picture in 71 so wow. these were all leading towards that lady in cement all of that was leading I think Mitchum was in one as well so there was a number of those films around that time they're trying to show what really happens for detectives on the streets of major cities so yeah no it's so interesting and obviously we're right at the beginning so we got to move on but yes yes but like the world of the late 60s early 70s action detective film Mm. and how important that was and being groundbreaking and intense and showing all these things we never saw before and then you compare that to 1988 and die hard yeah you know and what the different what it's taken from those hard-boiled kind of action cop stories yeah and then how it's added things in the 80s, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but right now, uh, John is saying that all the stuff about Asian Dawn and freeing hostages and all that stuff that Hans was spinning just doesn't make a lot of sense. Hey, don't ask me, man. I'm just a desk jockey who was on my way home when you rang. <laughs> and this is another key plant. And again, great plants just seem like throwaways. Like we don't pay attention to it that much, but this is something that's going to come back. And then we cut to, you know, we talked before about creating little characters in our side characters. And now we're back at the news studio Mm -hmm. hearing this author talk whose book is titled Hostage Terrorist, Terrorist Hostage, A Study in Duality. (laughs) So this is so a perfectly, perfectly intentionally funny moment uh, (laughs) because, you know, this it's also a little bit of um, uh, what do you call it where you're a little bit of a, a, a prescient uh, thing of having a talking head on television talking about their book. This is now standard operating procedure for so many networks, Steve. Uh, whenever a crisis or tragedy starts to happen, find me a, a, an author, find me a, a pundit who has knowledge of this kind of thing. Get them on air immediately. So what you're seeing here is so, so funny um, with the Stockholm Syndrome conversation. And he's a he's he's played so well, that psychiatrist or doctor, whatever he is. You're totally right. I hadn't thought about it. And one of the things I hate about the way news is, is it's not even like an event has already happened. Yeah, yeah. And now you have some expert 
it's trying to explain on it or speculate on it or things like that. But it's like literally in the middle of the event. Yeah. Someone comes on and tries to tell you what all this means. That is just t- absolutely terrible. And we even get a little dig at our anchor man who doesn't know that Helsinki is in Finland and not in Sweden. <laughs> Which is great. And, and of course, what this is referencing uh, is, is not something with Helsinki. It's actually the Stockholm syndrome. Right. Right. Um, <laughs> which, and then it, it, and then they take it even further because as we're hearing about hostages and terrorists trying to starting to identify with each other and become friends, what we're seeing is Ellis's body being dragged out yeah. in front of the hostages. By the way, I, I want to say something real quick. I love our fans and I love their devotion and their passion. And I don't even mind when they occasionally take shots at me. I was in the Facebook group the other day, and 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 you know, uh, Luke had put in that question about uh, whether uh, you know, do you believe Hans would have killed Theo? Hmm. To kill? Now, it wasn't a hundred percent what I said, but the general gist was there. I basically said that he would kill Theo. It could mean more money for them. I wasn't saying he intentionally did this; we keep more money. It was more like he would. But some of the fans were like, "No, he, he, he there's no way. He's there's there's no indication that Hans would do that." And I'm like. I responded to a couple of them. He cold killed Ellis and cold killed Takagi with no second thought. There's no remorse, no worry, no fear. So the fact that if he decided to kill Theo, it would just be done. It would just be over. And he would think he wouldn't think twice about it. So I think he has that ability to do so. Whether he would or not, of course, is up for debate. And that was fun to read people's comments. But I think he would kill anybody aside from Carl in this situation to get out of this situation and to escape with the money for sure. You know, what's funny. Uh, is criminal going to criminal is what I'm saying. Criminal. Gonna I, criminal. No, I think it's, to- I think it's totally <laughs> motivatable. It had never occurred to me until you brought it up, but you know what, what is funny is like, here we are on the cinephiles where we take the most minute, you know, <laughs> minutia unbelievably seriously. And yet, yeah. People t- sometimes take these movies way too seriously. Oh, they do. You yes, know what I mean? Do. It's like, yeah, we're digging in deep, but it's not serious. You know right, what I mean? Right. And some we're people occasionally, yeah. I, I, I don't remember what those actual Facebook posts were, but we've had people get genuinely upset with us. Oh, yeah. Over yeah. something that they disagreed with what we said, which is great that you're passionate about the film. <laughs> but it's also I like, like when. I like when people say I reach because I'm like, yeah, well, that's the reason I have a career in this business is because I bring new and interesting and unique takes to these kinds of things and enough people gravitate or like those takes. So I'll keep on being I'll keep on reaching because I think I like the idea of exploring these things in a fun and new way. And Steve has brought in some great perspectives uh, throughout. And some of you all who are listening or, or, or yeah, listening, you all have brought some great perspectives in your comments on in the Facebook group as well, which I find fascinating, you know. Well, I think, you know, this is what makes films great films is yes. that it's worth speculating on them. Absolutely. It's fun to, you know, there's, nobody spends a lot of t- time digging into the minutia of every episode of The Brady Bunch. You know, <laughs> it's not that I didn't like The Brady Bunch as a kid, but whether or not mm. Alice was making the pork chops with applesauce and made the applesauce <laughs> fresh rather than getting it from a jar actually isn't a thing we're going to spend a whole lot of time with. Marsha, Marsha, or whoever was it, Jan? Who, who threw the football? Bobby? A Pete? I forget who threw the football. They knew uh, Marsha was coming. Was Pete. Yeah, they were actually intentionally <laughs> breaking her nose. <laughs> Joe, we're never going to get through part three. Time. No, no. Let's go. Let's go. Sorry. 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 <laughs> um, but 
after they drag Alice's body away, we're back down with the police and they're desperately trying to figure out how to spell Asian Dawn. And then we hear that the FBI is here. The FBI is here now? Yes, sir, right over there. Do you want a breath mint? <laughs> so that is a Joel Silverline. Oh, great. I, I love a movie. You could, that's a great set where mm -hmm. people, all sorts of people are contributing and it's just making it a little better. Yeah. And now we get to meet Agent Johnson and Special Agent Johnson. Oh, how you doing? No relation. Again, it shouldn't work, Steve. It should make this a cheesy, stupid film. But it does work. It's so good. Older white dude, younger black guy, Robert Davi, who's great. Yeah. He's a Latino actor. I think he's Latino or Italian. He's a fantastic actor, obviously a villain in The Living Daylights, I think. Uh, and uh, the other gentleman, uh, he's been in a number of things as a character actor in a number of projects. But perfect, right? Johnson and Johnson. I mean, it's just brilliant. And of course, it's perfect now when when we're seeing uh, some issues with the Johnson Johnson vaccine. Yeah. <laughs> there was some incompetence going on when you say Johnson and Johnson. But yeah, um, this moment is just so perfectly done. Yet it's so ridiculous, but it works. And damn it, because the whole film is constructed so well yeah. that you allow this stuff. You know? Well, you go right from the joke of no relation, which yeah. is just hilarious, to Dwayne saying, "I'm in charge here." And Robert Davi, like, stepping up to this moment and taking a pause and then saying, Not anymore. So apparently, uh, I had forgotten, so but Davi was in Raw Deal with Arnold right yes! before this, which I That's totally right. I forgot that he was in it. And, right. and he was watching Die Hard with Arnold. And <laughs> that Arnold got so excited at this moment where he said, I'm in charge. And Arnold, I can't do the accent, but said, yeah. you are, you are in charge. Like, you're so in charge. Look how in charge you are. And, and, he, and, and it sounded like a ridiculous story, but anyone who has listened to Arnold on a commentary track yeah. <laughs> know that's exactly how excited he is when he's watching a movie. He's <laughs> <laughs> the best. Um, Hans is up in that machine room checking the explosions. He's got his flashlight. He's got a gun. But in order to climb up, he's got to put the gun down. Um, and he climbs up and he, then he jumps down from there. And the first thing he sees is bare feet. Hi there. How you doing? This is such a great scene. It is. It is. Once again, constructed out of the blue and brilliant. Well, and it almost didn't happen. Oh, wow. It is not in the original script. Ha. Huh. And then Steve D'Souza goes, wait a minute. We have our bad guy and our hero, and they never meet face to face until the very end of the film. Mm. How can I get them to meet face to face? And he's on set one day and he hears Alan Rickman joking around and Alan Rickman just runs through, you know, seven different accents. And he hears him do an American accent. And that is where this idea comes from. Wow, that's brilliant. And he goes, oh, my God, I want them to meet. And Alan Rickman pretends to be an American. And he goes to Joel Silver. And Joel Silver says, that's a terrible idea. Don't do it. <laughs> and he goes to McTiernan. And McTiernan says, that's a terrible idea. Don't do it. And then he says, like, look, let me write it. Just let me write it. And if you don't want to do it, obviously, you're not going to do it. So he goes off and writes it and he brings it back to them. And I think McTiernan gets a little bit on board. Yeah. And Joel Silver is like, I don't know. I don't think this is going to work out. And he goes over to Alan Rickman and says, do an American accent for me. And Alan Rickman does not just one American accent. He does like three. You know, he does wow. a Chicago. He does a New York. He does in L.A. Right. And then finally, Joel Silver goes, OK. 
And that's how this ends up in the movie. And then the other thing, though, is they had to change the way they shot a bunch of stuff because originally when uh, John McClane watches Hans kill Takagi, he sees Hans's face. And if he sees Hans's face in that scene or sees his face while looking down through the elevator, this scene doesn't work. That's a great point. And so they had to shoot it. And I don't know if they reshot it or they changed the way they were going to shoot it or changed the way they edited it. Hmm. But they had to make sure that John McClane did not know what Hans looked like. Right. You could just see. That's right. Now that I think about it, you just see his body. You see the gun, but you don't see his face because yep. from uh, Bruce Will or from uh, McClane's perspective on right. the table. That's right. God damn. That's brilliant. And Hans's shift from seeing those feet to going scared. Please, God, no, you're one of them, aren't you? You're one of them. Oh, you're going to kill me, don't, 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 kill me, don't. (laughs) Oh, it's so good. So good. And immediately, John McClane gets swayed by this. Relax, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to hurt you. And... Hans spins this story about getting away from people and wanting to get to the roof. And he says, it's this way. And he goes through between those machines and we see the gun in the foreground. Right. And there's a music sting and McLean stops it. Forget the roof. Come on, come on. I said, forget the roof. I got people all over. Come on, you want to stay alive? You stay with me. And right in the middle of this, which again is great storytelling, we cut away. We're Mm -hmm. back with Dwayne Robinson and the FBI guys. What's so funny is we hate Dwayne Robinson. He's a terrible person. And yet the way the FBI guys deal with him, we're irritated with them because they say, We'll handle it from here. When we commandeer your men, we'll try and let you know. Immediately it turns him into a sympathetic figure. Yeah. You know, because he's an incompetent buffoon. But he's kind of harmless to Reginald Vell Johnson's character. But when the FBI guys show up, they essentially castrate him. And that makes us feel a little sympathy for him because even bigger dicks have shown up. <laughs> That's the way it goes. Well, and this goes to how good screenwriting works mm-hmm. is that the line, when we commandeer your men, we'll try to let you know. Yeah. is terribly disrespectful. If you rearrange the words and say, uh, we'll let you know when we commandeer your men. Or mm-hmm. we might need to commandeer your men, so we'll try to stay in good communication with you. Those yeah. are ways to say the same thing but not be disrespectful. Right. You put in that try and you structure it the way it is, and it is totally disrespectful. Because everyone's been with a boss like that. Everyone knows someone like that. It's like, well, I'll try to let you know. You're just yeah. like, oh, you son of a bitch. You know? Well, because it's, it's as you said many times on the show, this is all about status. Yes. They are putting him in his place. Yep. Which also is why we enjoy what ends up happening to Johnson and Johnson, because they're such dicks. They are really. You don't work for Nakatomi. And if you're not one of them. Alan Rickman, you know, to say he plays it beautifully is just an understatement. I'm a cop from New York. New York. Yeah. Got invited to the Christmas party by mistake. Who knew? And I love the moment where Hans looks down at his feet and J- McLean's response is, Better be called your pants down, huh? <laughs> <laughs> and then John McLean notices the directory right next to him. Yeah. And says, I'm John McLean. This is such a great moment in film. You're, uh... And, and you know this as an actor is like, hmm. it's one thing to play one thing in a moment, but it's another to play the layers. Yeah. Yeah. Is that you see Hans under Bill Clay. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And you see that hardness come into his eyes, but you don't actually see his eyes really flick to that directory. Right. And he says, Clay. 
Bill Clay. And we see W.M. Clay mm -hmm. on that directory. That is such a great film moment. Yep. Yep. And the fact that it doesn't say Bill, it could say Bill Clay on the directory, could say William Clay on the directory. Mm -hmm. It says WM. And what makes that so much better is it makes us active. We get to have a discovery yeah. as an audience member. We get to go, oh, WM, that's William. William's Bill. He can't be there. Oh my God. You know? <laughs> um, by the way, right under that uh, is Jackson Degovia is on the directory. That is the production designer. <laughs> Put his name on the thing. That's awesome. And then John McClane hands Bill Clay a gun. Now to use a handgun, Bill. And we're going, you see, the first time, I'm like, no! Right, right. Oh my God, what are you doing? And we see John McClane do something with the gun. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I don't think I understand. I think he's pocketing the clip at that moment. Is mm -hmm. that what he's doing? Yeah, I think so too. And McClane limps away on his bloody feet, and we see a cigarette drop into frame. The foot step on the cigarette, and Hans speaking German into the wall. And John in the foreground smiles. Yep. It's pretty tricky with that accent. You gotta be on fucking TV with that accent. That's anger. Yeah. He's angry. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I love that. Well, and I love that at the moment that he smiles, we're like, oh shit, was John McClane ahead of him? Yeah. I'm going to count to three. Yeah. Like you did with Takagi. Hans pulls the trigger. Oops. No bullets. You think I'm fucking stupid, Hans? And then right in our <laughs> moment of triumph. Perfect. <laughs> like, we're just like, yes, John McClane got Hans. He totally outsmarted him. He totally tricked him. We hear. <sighs> You're saying? <laughs> it's brilliant. Oh, so they, good. People are going to miss me, but one of my reaches again. This is essentially a white male rap battle. This is what this <laughs> is in this moment. It really is because they're each trying to get the best of each other. And Hans does get that final line. He gets the mic dropping line. You were saying it's great. But my question for you is, when does John McClane know that it's Hans? And how does Hans not feel the difference in the weight of a gun with a clip and without a clip? He's been using a gun the whole movie. So these are the questions I have in this moment. When does John McClane know and why does he tell him if he does know it's Hans about his name, about uh, uh, where he's from, uh, all of that when he's tried to keep that off the radio chatter. So it's interesting that you say that because, you know, I mentioned that uh, on Patreon, people ask some questions and one mm. of them asked exactly the question you just asked. Ethan R. Murphy said, how exactly did McLean know that Hans was posing as Bill Clay? Right. What tipped him off? And so I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you what I actually think the answer is. Okay. It makes no sense. None of this, <laughs> none of this actually makes sense. There's no way that John McClane yeah. could have memorized that directory. No. <laughs> translated no. WM Clay to Bill Clay. Yeah. And there's no reason if he does know it's Hans from the beginning, not to just fucking shoot him. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. There's no reason. Why hand him a gun? Right. You know? And I agree with you. While I saw he did something with the gun, I wasn't sure that he pocketed a clip, but yeah. Hans would know that and would feel it in his hand and would check the clip right away. I mean, none mm -hmm. of this makes any sense except that it's awesome. Yeah, true. Very true. Very true. 
But I, and, I can you think of any reason that this that this works? No, I, not at all. That's why I was why I was I was like looking. I watched the scene two or three times when I watched when we watched it for our, our, our show, and I was just like, at no point do I sense where McLean understands as Hans, because even the smile, right, is like, oh, he was right, you know, or the smile is more of like, huh, all right. Um, but I don't know. And so did he know from the beginning, as soon as he did the, oh, what are you? Is it the cigarette? Because weren't those the European cigarettes? They're European cigarettes. Is sure. it the fact that he took the cigarette without, without, you know, wondering what kind of cigarette it was or that the flavor was different and not commenting on it? Was that the moment that he suspected it was Hans? Um, so I just wonder about all those things, but nothing explains how Hans doesn't know the weight. And anybody who shoots weapons, you all know, not 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 the newbies, but the real people who shoot weapons or you go to range. You know when a clip is in the in the in the uh, gun or not, and you know when a clip's in the rifle or not. Not just from it sticking out, but the weight of it, and especially in a gun which is smaller. So you'll be able to sense the difference in weight between a gun with a clip and a gun without a clip. So to me, it's just confusing uh, that he would not sense that. So, but like I said, it makes for good film uh, scenes for sure. Well- it's funny. As everyone knows who listens to the show, I care a lot about things making sense. Yeah. If I'm talking to my students, I'm continually saying, wait, why is this person doing this? It doesn't make mm-hmm. sense. But it's funny. Something that came up in an entirely different way years and years ago when we did 2001. Oh, yeah. Is that that's a movie that who knows what the hell is going on. <laughs> and there are long, long sequences that basically nothing is happening. Yeah, yeah. But if you do all the other stuff great you can make up for something that seem seemingly would be boring or doesn't yes. make sense. Yes. Alan Rickman's performance, Bruce Willis's performance, the cinematography, the dialogue, the music, everything. It, and the, the joy of seeing these two come together and battle yeah. of wits and all that is so great that the fact that a couple of things about it don't make sense. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It yeah. just doesn't matter. I agree with you, man. Yeah. But now John McClane is instantly on the run as two more terrorists come out of that elevator. One of the guys running straight forward gets shot right in the knees and goes down into a pane of glass. It is nasty. Yeah, it is. Yeah. That is the lead stunt coordinator. And that is a real piece of glass that he sticks his head through. That's 11 stitches. What the fuck? Why don't they use the other glass, the fake well, glass? So one of the interesting things, and I we, we kind of heard this in other movies we did. Uh, I know certainly when we did years ago, Jackie Chan's Police Force, oh, yeah. where they break so much glass, yeah. is that, that there are all different kinds of glass, and they use all different kinds to get different effects. And I think to get a particular kind of shatter, you need mm-hmm. to use real glass. And apparently... When in doing this scene where they knew they're going to break a lot of glass, they did yeah. tons of glass experiments. There are a whole bunch of different kinds of glass being used in the scene, yeah. and it is a total of $125,000 worth of glass that they Good break night. in this scene. Good night. Okay. John that's, goes for, yeah. That's a lot, Steve. Jesus. It's right. crazy, right? Yeah. Um, apparently, everyone came to watch it when they shot this, and mm. everyone was scared. Like it was really intense to be on this set with glass just shattering everywhere. Wow. It's just nuts. Oh, and one of the things too, by the way, you know, this is so typical of how movie sets work. They rented a bunch of computers because this is the computer room. Mm -hmm. And when they rented all the computers, 
they signed all the agreements that the computers would not be damaged (laughs) when they rented them. And then they go like, hey, by the way, we're going to break $125,000 for the glass over all these computers. (laughs) I don't think they got their deposit back on a lot of these things. (laughs) Why does Carl not understand German? She stimpfenst And then Hans has to say it in English. Shoot the glass. Yeah, that's weird, right? Because uh, you imagine they've had interactions, right? I mean, well, I and like. I think Carl's first language is German. Yeah, his name <laughs> is Carl. Like, that's kind of a dead giveaway with a K I, as it is yeah, in the cast list. I believe so it's with a K. That's a German. Carl Strauss Brewery. That's German. So. I think this is exactly like uh, what we were just saying before. It doesn't make sense. But yeah. hearing it in German first and English second is better for maybe, us. Yeah, and maybe know? Silver was like, we're not subtitling it. Have him say it again in English. Yeah. But it's a good moment, right? Because um, I didn't know if it was because he couldn't hear him. but Or he was just like, you know, uh, not wanting to understand what he was saying and then said it in English. But yeah, you're right. There's no reason he should be saying it in English. Yeah. And do you think when you first saw this, mm. when Hans says shoot the glass and they just start, and it's crazy, all the glass yeah. exploding everywhere. Yeah. Did you immediately connect that this is about John's feet? Oh, good question. Did I? I don't think I did. I don't think I did until until they show the shot of all the glass on the ground. Right. And then I was like, oh, shit. Yeah, yeah. Probably that. Yeah. Um, and by the way, Bruce Willis's performance underneath oh. all the glass exploding everywhere and his fear and just being overwhelmed is great. Yeah, it feels realistic. And that moment you're talking about, that's another triangle shot where we go from Mm. Bruce to the glass to his bare feet. Mm. It's a triangle shot that perfectly does the storytelling. And there's this moment of, oh, shit. His Mm. only way to get out is to run across broken glass with bare feet. Yeah. And then Carl throws one of those flash grenades. And we go from this loud, cacophonous space into silence. Mm. And John McClane is gone. Yeah. But his bag is there, and Hans is happy. Smile, Carl. You're back in business. And the moment that Carl turns towards Hans, that look on his face of of anger is amazing. Yeah, yeah. Like, he's not done with this situation. Back uh, where the hostages are, Hans tosses the detonator's bag to Al Leong, and Holly watches Carl destroy the bar with the gun. He's still alive. Only John can drive somebody that crazy. Yeah. <laughs> that line is so great. It's great line. <laughs> it's, and again, you know what's funny is we talk about this a lot now. Again, this makes no sense. Like yeah, of the course. fact that she that John drove Holly crazy as her husband <laughs> has nothing to do with how he's driving terrorists crazy <laughs> in this situation. <laughs> the line is perfect. Yeah, it is. <laughs> And then we cut to, again, we have these shifts in tone with this moment that's really funny. And she's so happy that that John is still alive. And we cut to John dragging himself into the bathroom, yeah. his foot trailing a huge amount of blood. Yeah, This comes, by the way, from a battery-operated blood pumper that's mm-hmm. in his pants leg. And right at that moment, we go again. Now we're cutting. You know, this is the classic Shakespearean thing from from Macbeth of mm. as things get more intense, you cut faster and faster between scenes. Scenes get mm. shorter. And that's certainly happening here because we go right back to uh, Theo, who is now says, You better heat up that miracle because we just broke through on number six. And the electromagnetic came down like a fucking anvil. 
We're in the bathroom with John McClane, and he's talking to Al on the radio. I think this scene and the one that follows are the core of this movie. Yeah, absolutely. One thing I had I didn't know when we recorded the last part, and we we're talking about mm-hmm. radio calls with John and Al, whether or not they were in the same room or if a script supervisor was reading the lines. Mm. Reginald Val Johnson was in the room, in the oh, bathroom, when they recorded great. this, which really makes sense because the scene is so lovely. So now Bruce Willis, sitting at the sink, is going to pull glass out of his feet. Mm. And I think we've reached the low point for him. You know, yeah. I think at this point, his feet are filled with glasses, bleeding everywhere. He's going to die. Yeah. That's what he's facing as in these scenes in the bathroom. Uh-huh. And is he talking about that? No. no. He's making jokes about, you know, the pool and put, put some money in for it. And then as he pulls out more glass, he doesn't want to talk about himself. Mm-hmm. And so he changes the subject. And he asks about Al. Hey, pal, you got flat feet? What the hell are you talking about, man? Something had to get you off the street. And Al doesn't want to talk about it. Nope. He is trying to avoid this topic. Yeah. I mean, I think he would try to avoid this topic in any situation. Oh, sure. But in particular, he doesn't want to tell this guy at this moment this thing. What's the matter? You don't think jockeying papers across a desk is a noble effort for a cop? No. I had an accident. And McLean is still joking. Drive, I can see why. What'd you do? Run over your cabin, flip with the car. And then Al says, I shot a kid. He almost blurts it out, Steve. Yep. Yeah. I shot a kid. It's almost like, okay, you want to know? I'll tell you. It hurts me to say this, but I'm going to tell you straight up. And it's it's a nice color on Reginald Val Johnson's performance, you know? He's just been such an emotional anchor of the movie. And then that moment is just so like, Boom. And to be clear, he says, I shot a kid. Yeah. Did he kill that kid? I don't know. I think he did. Oh, yeah, maybe. I think he did. I've always thought he did. Yeah. Uh, you're asking me the question if I know for sure. I no, don't, we don't but know. I always yeah, thought he know. did. Yeah. So now we're in this big action movie. Mm-hmm. Dude's pulling glass out of his feet. We got terrorists. The FBI guys have showed up. Yeah. You know, all this stuff is happening. And now we have this. Honestly, really fucking heavy thing. Yeah. Just get dropped right onto John McClane. And what I love, and this is why I love John McClane, this scene and in the next scene, yeah. is that he feels terrible. Yeah. The guy's about to die. Guy's pulling glass out of his feet. And yet he feels bad that he made this other cop, this guy whose face he's never even seen, yeah, yeah, yeah. say this painful thing about himself. Yeah, it's true. It was dark, I couldn't see him. He had a ray gun look real enough. You know, when you're a rookie, they can teach you everything about being a cop except how to live with a mistake. Anyway, I just couldn't bring myself to draw my gun on anybody again. Which is a plant, mm, to be right. clear. Of course. It's a, it's of course. a perfect plant. But again, it's a plant with emotional resonance. Yeah. And and we don't see it as a plant because we're just in the scene, because the yeah. scene is so powerful. And then John McClane apologizes. Sorry, man. Hey, man. How could you know? I feel like shit anyway. And remember, what is the thing that's going to happen in the next scene? He never told his wife he's sorry. Yeah. Right. But he's telling this cop right now, in this moment, every bit of John yeah. McClane's emotional being is with this other guy. It's, it's, yeah. 
it's that thing, right? I mean, they're sharing. And you're right, Steve. This wasn't happening in 70s, you know, cop films. Like, this, not, this isn't happening in French Connection. This isn't happening in those approaches to it, you know? This well, is the change. This and is it's definitely the, not happening in Running Man or Raw Deal. Oh, right. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes, yes. And it's the advent of psychology, psychiatry, talking about your feelings. This is the 80s is where. For all the excess, there was also a real explosion of self-help. People wanted mm. more. People wanted to explore why they weren't successful. They saw so many other people being successful. Why am I not successful? You know, running becomes a thing. Working out, Jane Fonda, all that shit. It was about self-improvement. The 80s, for all the excess, was also about self-improvement and the explosion of that. And psychiatry, which had been building, I think, through the obviously 1800s, 1900s, whatever, but like the 50s, 60s, 70s, it was creeping into the dialogue in movies. And the 80s is where you really get the conversation starting to become something honest and real and, and emotions coming out. And then into the 90s, certainly. It's all over the place in the 90s as, as the actors get younger and younger and the uh, issues get deeper and deeper and stronger. And these conversations have more layers to them uh, than they did in the 80s, you know? You know what I think it is too is, mm. uh, and I hadn't thought about it until you were just saying that is, you know, I think this is maybe one of the first big cracks in the masculine yes. identity of the emotionless, 100%. hard, you know, can't be soft in any way person. Because here's this guy who is as tough as any guy in film. He's as tough yeah. as Rocky, as tough. The name, whatever guy stands up to adversity, John McClane is right up there. Yeah. And yet we see his flaws. And one of his major flaws is his inability to deal with his emotions. Yes. And to deal with his relationships and to like, mm -hmm. that's, so he's this amazing person and this hero. And yet his flaws are really, really human and really on the, man, I wish John McClane could deal with this stuff. Yeah. You know? And and you compare it to Sinatra as I began was this episode with uh, with you dropping the thing Sinatra the detective he has a moment at the end of the film where he realizes that he has sent up the wrong man to die mm. and he feels bad about it but in no way is he like you know totally broken or totally like you know giving his emotions like uh, um, Bruce Willis does here so just comparing in essence two versions of the same character. In two decades, two different approaches to these kinds of uh, vulnerable moments. You can clearly see, you know. Well, and that's what, to me, like the Rocky John McClane McC comparison is really key, which is that yeah. what does it take for Arnold in Predator, the other last John McTiernan movie, right. who's wounded and hurt to fight against the Predator, right. versus what does it take for John McClane, who's got glass in his feet, to get up off of the bathroom and continue yeah. the battle? And there's no comparison. Yeah. Uh, you know, Arnold and Predator, you know, we talked about, it. I like the movie. I think it's exciting, but it doesn't have yeah. an emotional wallop the way Die Hard does. And those guys in the suits, I don't know who they are. That's the FBI. They're ordering the others to cut the building's power. Regular as clockwork. Or a time lock. The intensity in the way Alan Rickman delivers this next line is so yeah. great. He says, The circuits that cannot be cut are cut automatically in response to a terrorist incident. You ask for miracles, dear. I give you the FBI. <laughs> and then the next scene, which could be a throwaway scene. Mm -hmm. All this scene is, is that Agent Johnson and Special Agent Johnson mm -hmm. want the power shut down. And they could just say, hey, shut the building's power down. And the guy shuts the building power down. And that's right. it. 
Right. But instead, we have like four different conflicts going on in the scene. You know, Davi is trying to convince this guy to shut the power guy down. Yeah. His supervisor is saying, you can't do it. The guy in the hole is saying, well, I could do it. You know, I got the radio. Dwayne Robinson is getting really nervous about yeah. what's going on. Uh, uh, Special Agent Johnson is threatening our, our LADWP guy. There's so much conflict in the scene, and it's kind of funny. Could you imagine the guy in charge is is like, no, I'm going to get in so much trouble if, totally. we, if we do this. And the dude down there is trying to be helpful. And homie's like, will you shut the fuck up? Right. Like, I'm, I'm handling this. Shut the fuck up. And he's like, oh, uh, you know, he's trying to be, you know, kind of helpful, uh, compliant to the FBI. Right. And then Davi finally has to get down there and like point at him. Lose the grid or you lose your job. And even then, he could just get online and say, shut down grid 212. But he, he has so much personality anyway, yeah. he makes the call. Uh, say, listen, uh, would it be possible for you to turn off uh, grid 212? And I love Dwayne. Perfect button on the scene. Uh, maybe I should talk to the mayor about this. <laughs> hey, no shit, it's my ass. I got a big problem down here. Shut it down. Shut it down now. And we do, and we see the lights go off on Nakatomi Plaza. By the way, they could not actually shut down the lights on Nakatomi Plaza. You want to know why? Why? Because it would shut down multiple city blocks. It oh. literally is exactly the same reason in the movie. Yeah. They couldn't shut. And so this lights going off on Nakatomi, this is a special effect. Mm -hmm. And it costs like $20,000. Wow. Because they couldn't actually do it practically. Um, it was really expensive. And then, okay. We talked a lot in the first two parts about Ode to Joy. Yes. We talked about how we've been hinting of Ode to Joy, hearing little pieces of it, little unfinished bits, little ones that are dissonant in a low register, in a minor key. And now, as the lights are going off on Nakatomi Plaza, we begin to move into the actual resolution of Ode to Joy. Emergency lighting activated. Al, Al, talk to me. What's going on here? Ask the FBI. They got the universal terrorist playbook and they're running it step by step. At the moment that this incredible piece of Beethoven hits, gonna go. the it's safe gonna go. opens and we fully hear Ode to Joy. It is the most joyful and satisfying moment in the whole film. Yeah. And it's when the bad guys are winning. Yeah. The light as the safe opens hits Hans. There's wind in their hair. We heard John McTiernan's whole thing in order to take this gig was there had to be joy in the yeah. bad guys. And this is it. It's so fun. Merry Christmas. Those bastards are probably pissing in their pants right now. <laughs> Mayor's gonna have my ass. By the way, Karen asked the question, which really does make, you know, it's a good question of like, why does shutting down the power open the safe? <laughs> That doesn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> How is there power to open the safe? I always thought it was an electronic electronic uh, security system in the safe. So shutting down the power shuts it in because it has to reboot. Yes, but, but yeah. why does the door open? Yeah, that's a great point. Why does the door open? Yeah. Because it's really cool. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. Um, listen to the way this is edited. This is perfect music editing. You know, there's this music goes, ba -ba, da -da, da -da, da -da, and right in it, rhythmically is him opening those metal boxes and even the flicking of the breast of the metal statue is all timed perfectly within this music well what are we gonna do now arrest them for not paying their electric bill 
We shut them down. We let them sweat for a while, then we give them helicopters. Right up the ass. And again, again, we get, I don't know why this joke is so damn funny. This is Agent Johnson. No, the other one. (laughs) I want that air support ready to lift off in five minutes. Damn right, fully armed. And of course, Al hears that. And Hans calls to the FBI, and the FBI tells him, it's all good. We've arranged for the return of your comrades, got helicopters coming. And then we have two lines that are basically exactly the same. The FBI says, Let me figure out what hit him. They'll be in a body bag. Cut to, When they touch down, we'll blow the roof. They'll spend a month sifting through the rubble. And by the time they figure out what went wrong, we'll be sitting on a beach earning 20%. So it's a double betrayal, parallel, yeah. right next to each other. John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there, the Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Steven, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, Thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. And now we're back in the bathroom with John talking Al. Listen, man, I'm starting to get a bad feeling up here. Bruce Willis's performance as this scene is incredible. He's in so much pain, physical and emotional pain. And he's trying to say something that's so hard. And because it's this moment, basically, he thinks he's going to die. And this goes back to Jeb Stewart's epiphany about the script. Mm. He has this moment driving on the freeway, almost gets in an accident. He had just had a fight with his wife and he goes, what would have happened if I never told my wife I'm sorry and I died? I want you to do something for me. Um, I want you to find my wife. Don't ask me how, by then you'll know how. Uh, I want you to tell her something. I want you to tell her that. um, And he doesn't have the words. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is the words he finally uses are really cliches. I told her it took me a while to figure out uh, what a jerk I've been. That, that when things started to pan out for her, 
I should have been more supportive. And uh, I just should have been behind her more. So we think about, for me, yeah, he's going to die. Yeah. He's wounded. He's hurt. And all he's thinking about is that he blew it with his wife. Mm-hmm. That he was wrong. That he wasn't a good husband. That's amazing to me. Remember, this is 1988, right? Yeah. This idea of having the man say this stuff. Do you know what I'm saying? I think it's pretty novel. Oh, yeah. Um, it's kind of like the opposite. So I, I it's funny you say that because I never thought he was going to die. I don't remember ever having that moment. Um, That's and what maybe, I think he thinks. That's what Yeah, yeah of course. Yes, yes, yes. Of course. Yeah. Yes, yes. Which is what motivates the conversation here. But I also think it's it's a fantastic window into this idea of appreciating the things you have. Yeah. And sadly, it takes these kind of life moments or near near uh, near death moments to kind of wake you up to it. And it's a you know a great great delivery and great fantastic performance. And the, you're right, it's kind of cheesy the things he says, but uh, they're genuine. I mean, that's what saves the whole scene and the whole speech. Tell her that um, that she's the best thing that ever happened to a bum like me. She's heard me saying I love you a thousand times. She never heard me say I'm sorry. I can't imagine being in a relationship and never saying you're sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I fuck up right? all the time, man. Yeah. I say I'm sorry comes out. It came out five times yesterday. You know? <laughs> so, yeah. John, man, yeah. you really should have said you're sorry. Yeah, I know, right, dude? I want you to tell her that, Alan. I want you to tell her that uh, John said that he was sorry. Okay? You got that, man? I remember this story from when it first came out, like back in 88, how Bruce Willis said in interviews that, you know, this was a really challenging scene for him to shoot. It was the one that intimidated him most. Because it was a genuine acting emotional yeah. scene outside of all the madness. His action was easy. That's not a problem. But it was this scene that really shook him. And it, it, he didn't get it until he thought about losing Demi. Mm. And at the time, he was in love with Demi Moore. Obviously, he was married and, and what have you. And they were beginning their their, their marriage. Um, or I think they were about to get married. But he just thought about what it would be like if I was going to die and I had to send one last message to Demi Moore. And so that's what he channeled in that bat. And so when you're watching it, it's why that scene is so fucking good because it's genuine. You know, hundred percent. It's really genuine. Um, just like uh, Bill Murray at the end of Scrooge, that's genuine shit. That's going mm-hmm. past the fourth wall, uh, past the fourth wall. They're going, they're, they're inside you. And yeah. I, and, and that well, you, you, you sense the reality of that, that it stops to be, stops becoming a movie and you're just appreciating the actual genuine emotion and vulnerability you're watching uh, in the scene and relating to it. Well, and this is the thing, you know, we talked about the distance when we started between the seventies cop movie and stuff like that. Mm. And then in the eighties mm. with this big action sequences and there's so much slicker, this moment is unlike any moment in any other action movie mm. of the eighties, the closest, maybe there's some moments in first blood with Stallone yes, that have that end. sort of yeah. emotional resonance. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I, I think this blows those away. I like first blood, yeah, but yeah. this is more, more touching. Um, and I think this is the thing that none of the other diehards can duplicate. This yeah. is the thing that's very hard to duplicate in other action movies is a genuine, true, honest, vulnerable, emotional moment. But you can tell that that's yourself. 
You just watch your ass and you'll make it out of there, you hear me? Yeah, like I said, something to man upstairs. I think this transition, thought transition, is a little weak, which is that he says that's up to the man upstairs. And mm -hmm. that makes him think of what Hans was doing upstairs. And then fucking William Atherton <laughs> at the door of Holly Gennaro's house talking to the housekeeper. Yeah. If we thought he was an asshole before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Threaten a, a, threatening to call the INS and then saying this is the last chance these kids have to speak to their parents. Uh, as 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 prescient as network is, this is these are small prescient moments as well. As we see a person who's trying to make their career off the uh, uh, tragedy or potential tragedy of other people, and not caring at all about putting yeah. these children in the, in this kind of a situation because his career matters more than their feelings or emotions or PTSD from uh, this uh, situation. John McClane is up in the machine room looking around. And I don't understand why he's bloody. He's limping and he's yelling. What were you doing, Hans? What were you? If there were terrorists hunting me, I would not yell. <laughs> that That's fair. You're more of a unwise. quiet person. He's thinking it's out loud. True. <laughs> just like he did earlier in the film. Remember? He's like, why don't you go after him? Because you'd be dead, shithead. You know, he's just, he's that kind of thinker. He's an yes. East Coast boy. East Coast boys, you know, that's how it works. You kind of talk out loud. Lindley here, I, the other day I was moving stuff around in the office to create some more space. And I'm talking to myself as I'm moving shit around. Ah, yeah, that, it'll fit perfectly there. That's the, yeah. Good, good. That's it. And then she comes in, she goes, I'll never understand why you do that. I'll never understand why you do that. And I'm, like, I'm, just, I'm just trying to convince myself of what I'm doing, that I'm doing the right thing here. I have a so process. I, I got to go through a process. Exactly. It's like, let me have a process. And he pulls himself up and sees all the C4 laid out, the lights blinking. Pal, pal, listen to me. It's a double cross. The whole roof of the building fired. And then that gun is in his face. We are both professional. This is personal. And he breaks the radio. And John McClane does, he does like a full Captain Kirk here, which is the pretend to be weak for a moment. Yeah. And then knock that gun away, punches, and just attacks him full on, driving him forward, rapid punches, knee, and then Carl blocks. And John has hit him like yeah. 10 times. And Carl blocks and hits one punch in the face and knocks him backward. It's such a perfect setup for a fight because this is classically David and Goliath because... Mm -hmm. Carl is bigger and stronger and more coordinated and Bruce is scrappier and he uses the environment and he uses his yeah. anger. Carl is a uh, fresher as well. Totally. Bruce has been going through all this shit. So he is like, you're right, David and Goliath. Absolutely. Yeah. It's almost like uh, uh, Maximus and, uh, and uh, Commodus, right? They, they, they've injured him so much that he thinks it's going to be an easy victory. Right. And then he, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is the key. I mean, anytime that, that uh, movies, spend more time building up the strength of their hero than they do mm. building up the strength of their bad guy. Those movies are generally making a mistake. Yes. You know, right. um, and again, it's the rapid cutting. We're right in the middle of the fight scene and we cut out to the choppers coming in. Yeah. Um, and these are real choppers, the real helicopters, by the way, this was all super, super complicated. And then we cut from the helicopters coming in to Hans, who says, Time to gather your flock, Miss Gennaro. And as he says this, the TV that's on behind him, we hear the interview with the little kids and the camera pushes in on Hans and he looks back and he lifts up the picture to see the picture of John McClane and Holly Gennaro and those two kids that are on the TV. And he says, Mrs. McClane, 
Honest to make your acquaintance. And then he fires his gun just to scare the crap out of people, and he grabs Holly. She's in shock, too, a little bit, because oh, she yeah. tries to kind of, like, uh, you know, like, blankly walk past him, and he grabs her, and she can tell she's just, like, in shock, because she had been holding things back. Now, not only is John in danger, now her children are in danger, and that's a, a whole other realm of fear that she's in now. Well, and we said many times on The Cinephiles, a lot of times your job as a filmmaker is to create what I will call oh shit moments. Yeah, yeah. Well, and usually, if you can get one really good oh shit in your movie, that's great. Yeah. This is a triple oh shit. Because we just had the gun went into John's face and now he's battling with Carl. The helicopters that are fully armed are flying towards Nakatomi Plaza. And Hans just figured out that Holly Gennaro is, in fact, Holly McClain. All three of those things happen one after another. And that's why the tension is so high. Uh, We have a close up of John's bloody face on the ground and then a kick to that face. A rack focus to a gun that's in front of him. Another kick to the face, a jump kick. It's nice to have a ballet dancer, John. <laughs> yeah, I know. You're right. Because <laughs> Alexander Goodenough, that guy can move. And I, I, I always love this fight in the movie because it's a rage fight. Totally. It's, it's not a coordinated fight. This is a rage fight from a guy. This John McClane is fighting for his life. Carl is fighting for vengeance for his brother. Mm-hmm. So it is a knockdown, drag out, um, uh, brutal, desperate, um, primal and it's fantastic to watch. Uh, I remember the first time I saw this fight, Steve, in the theater, and I was with Bruce Willis going, Ugh! like, I just felt that when he's punching him. Totally. He's like yelling at him in that moment. Like, you sense that pain and that frustration, that anger, because this guy is so, you know, he's trying to kill him. Well, and we ne- I don't think we've ever seen this. This is not how Arnold yeah. fights. This is not how any, nobody's ever fought, you know, like this yeah. in a movie. Like, just the full rage. And him, he reverses on Carl, throws him into these pipes, is slamming his yeah. head down, and says, hurt your brother squeal. I broke his fucking neck! <laughs> and I was just... I remember being in the theater, and I'm wow. laughing, and, like, yeah. you grunting, and, and just having... And then we cut away to the helicopters to keep that tension going. What do you figure? The breakage! Figure we take out the terrorists... Those 20, 25% of the hostages. Tops. I can live with that. It's I can live with that that makes it totally acceptable and even desirable to kill the fucking FBI guys. Yeah, of course. Of course. That's the moment. Yeah, they're willing to kill other people, innocent civilians, so their lives are immediately null and void in our minds. Yeah. Hans gets on the radio to call for John McClane because he has his wife and there is no answer. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. The note I had at this point, by, by the way, was that at this moment, Hans hates John McClane. Yes. And that is messing him up. He is not actually behaving as smartly as he did at the beginning of the movie. Right. Because he's pissed. Yes. Um, Carl grabs a gun and John has the moment of another oh shit and mm-hmm. runs out the door just getting hit. Great, A grazing shot to the shoulder as he goes. <laughs> Carl comes through this door in this hugely dramatic shot with smoke in the background and he's walking forward. And now we see John's feet in the foreground and kicks Carl in the face. He jumps down at him just going, motherfucker, I'll kill you. He's just so desperate, man. I love it. What I know my note at this moment, which might sound odd, but this is the moment I wrote down. I love John McClane. <laughs> yeah. Like, motherfucker, I'll kill you. Uh, Hans is grabbing bonds and 
Holly is watching him and she says, After all your posturing, all your little speeches, you're nothing but a common thing. So apparently, Alan Rickman could not get this moment. Oh, really? Yeah. He was too... He had too low energy. He wasn't angry enough. He was too calm. And yeah. what it was, and I and I, I think you would appreciate this too as an actor, you've built a whole character on having everything together. Yeah. And so with that, all that, it's hard to lose it. And that's, I think, what Alan Rickman was struggling with. And I think it was John McTiernan's direction is he gave him a physical direction. Is he said, throw the bag away. Like you're yeah. so angry, you have to toss the bag away and lunge at her. Yeah. And that physicality allowed him to get to the intensity that he had in this moment. I am an exceptional thief, Mrs. McLean. And since I'm moving up to kidnapping, you should be more polite. It's perfect because he comes to her. Yeah. So you sense immediately he's in a submissive position in this moment. Even though he's lunging at her. Yeah. And by the way, you got to love the 80s to make sure she gets the button on top so yes. you can see her, see her bra. A little bit but, of cleavage, yeah. Yeah, a little cleavage. And look, bottom of this smoking hot in this movie. Yeah. So it's a great moment for us dudes. Uh, but like the him, it's, he's almost, how can I say this? He's almost like an aggressive teenager going up to the hot girl on the, like while crawling on the ground. Right. Mm-hmm. She's like, oh, and it gets up in her face like that. But she is so calm that she's that it immediately in our mind, she's in the power position, even though she's sitting there, even though she's a bit of a hostage in that moment. She's in the power position because he has to scramble towards her to try to intimidate her. And it isn't it doesn't work. Holly's unflappable in this situation. She's regaining control of herself, which I think is great after the shock of her kids being in danger. Well, and I think the key is, is that she poked a hole in his pride. Yep. Yeah. Like she just, just she like hit him at the would. vulnerable spot. Absolutely. Like most terrorists, they're flaccid little fools who are just trying to, you know, exert some kind of power or control because they have so little in their own lives. And it just it's perfect. That yeah. moment. And I think, by the way, it's a sign of how good these other scenes are that we can cut away from a fantastic fight scene. Yeah. And be totally fine with it. Like each of these scenes are in their own way as good as John McClane fighting Carl. But yes. now we're back to them and they're heading up the stairs and he's dragging him up the stairs repeatedly, <laughs> punching Carl in the face. It says, and again, this might be among my favorite lines, motherfucker, I'm going to kill you, <laughs> then I'm going to cook you, and then I'm going to fucking eat you. <laughs> As I said, primal. It's very primal. Totally. And the fighting is close and Carl's got his hand under John's chin and is pushing him back. And McLean grabs a chain, spins it around his neck, slides down the fucking uh, railing, hanging Carl. It is that is an amazing climax to a fight scene. Utter desperation. And it's fantastic. And you're right. And he essentially, yeah, he hangs. He hangs him and slams him into uh, into the concrete there on on the wall. And then we go right from that to, again, a quick cut. I won't say that this redeems Dwayne Robinson because he's mm. not a redeemable character. No, but no. he is now siding with Al. I don't like this, Sarge. Because as much as he's an asshole, he is not as much of an asshole as Agent Johnson and Special Agent Johnson. Right. It's a, it's, <coughs> it's a great thing you bring up, Steve, because in this moment, you could almost reassess Dwayne. When he showed up, he actually was worried for everybody in the building. And so, yes, was he a dick about how he went about it? Absolutely. But the general gist of what, why he was doing the things he was doing is because he uh, wanted to make sure that nobody died in that building. So 
Did he do it correctly? No. Making fun of Bruce Willis, claiming oh, he's probably a bartender, blah, blah, blah. He was really insensitive and stupid. But his general purpose there was to save every life in that building. Uh, Johnson and Johnson are arguing the odds of what's acceptable for their behavior in terms of losses. And that immediately puts them in the way more dickish position. And so Dwayne is able to be redeemed and have this moment with uh, 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 Reginald Vell Johnson that is believable. This connection is believable in this moment because of that. Well, you know what it is? I think you put it. You said exactly right. Dwayne is insensitive and stupid, but he's not evil. Right. Johnson and Johnson don't give a shit about how many people are going to die. They don't care. I was in junior high, dickhead. Even those two guys don't like each other. So yep. they're like, they're like evil for evil. I'd, I'd hate to be on a call with those two dudes. Oh. oh my god! Can you imagine being a trainee on a call with those two guys? Fuck that noise, man. I, I think they have the thing where they personally hate each other, but acknowledge that they work well together. Do you and know what I mean? Both, yeah, and they're both sick. So yeah. no one else wants to work with them. So they're like, well, I may not like the guy, but he's as sick as I am. So fuck it. You know, um, by the way, I was in junior high dickhead. That's a John McTiernan line. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. Um, the, the way the, the helicopters are photographed is amazing. Oh, as yeah. they're Coming in. And this was really, I think I said before, really complicated, really dangerous. Al leaves the Al Leong leaves the hostages on the roof, runs downstairs, open the door and immediately gets shot. <laughs> And John McClane runs up on the roof, finds the pregnant assistant and asks, where's Holly? He says, where's Holly Gennaro? Yeah. The fact that he uses Gennaro at this incredibly intense moment means to me that he has, you know, how people say they've changed, but they haven't really changed. I think the fact that because he can't be thinking about using Gennaro, I think he's changed. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because he uses that name. And now he's trying to get the hostages. He finds out that Holly's on the 30th floor and he's trying to get the hostages out on the roof and nobody's listening to him. So he opens fire, which makes the guys in the helicopter think that he's one of the terrorists. And so they open fire on John, who jumps off the roof. By the way, these are really two. um, I think they're I forget what kind of helicopter they are. Really two like Vietnam era armed helicopters and there were the hostages on the roof they were circling the roof there were squibs going off this is what mctiernan says mctiernan says he got scared Mm. and he said and he called he had a bunch of other shots and he just called him off he just felt it was too dangerous what was happening right i don't know exactly what the truth of that is but that's pretty rare for a director in the moment of their big shot to to worry about safety you know what i mean We've had had lots of movies where the director did not do that. Yep. Could care less. Yes. The hostages are running down the stairs and who they run by is Carl. And and, and what uh, I think was Joel Silver who said is like they needed a thing to simultaneously remind the audience that Carl is dead. Yeah. And simultaneously put Carl in people's minds and have a slight suspicion that he might not be dead. Smart. Yeah. Smart. So smart. And now the helicopter is swinging around because uh, Robert Dobby says, I'm going to bag this little bastard. And he gets out his big sniper raffle. And then John McClane grabs the fire hose. <laughs> I remember being in the movie theater just going, what the fuck is he doing? 
Yeah, and that's the appropriate response. <laughs> and then this is another moment of a great him talking to himself. Oh, John, what the fuck are you doing? How the fuck did you get into this shit? I'm telling you, these scenes where he talks to himself are absolute gold. And they totally. are one of the reasons, they're maybe the biggest reason we connect with him the way we do. At least in my opinion. I connect with him in these moments. Because I know these moments. I've done these moments. And so to me, it feels realistic what he's doing. He's navigating this in his head and he's talking to himself as a way to calm himself down for what he's about to do, which is jump off a fucking roof tied to a fire hose, man. <laughs> so like the internal conversation that, you know, he's an expressive guy. It's going to come out. I think, you know, I think you're totally right. And I think it's it's these talking to himself moments combined with the scenes in the bathroom. Yes. Yes. You know yes, what I mean? That yes. make this just a fully human, fully realized human character. Yeah. Um, and again, everything is coming together. The helicopter is coming around with the sniper rifle to kill John. And Han says, blow the roof. The car's up there. Blow the roof. John is at the edge. The edge of the building, which, by the way, is a parking structure that's been repainted and set dressed to look oh. like the roof of the Nakatomi building. Smart. He's on the edge of a parking structure. He's talking to himself. I promise I'll never even think about going up in a tall building again. Oh, God, please don't let me die. When is a hero ever said, please yeah. don't let me die? It's true. And in this moment, the helicopter rises up behind him. Agent Johnson takes aim. Hans hits the bomb. John McClane jumps just as the explosion hits. Everything has come together to this climactic moment. And it's one of the greatest climactic sequences in all of film. Yeah. And the genius of McTiernan or the editor to use slow motion here is mm -hmm. just so smart. Because I don't think we've seen slow motion the whole movie. I don't think. And this is the one time we see it. And it works perfectly. And for any burgeoning film directors out there who are listening to us, be very careful how you use slow motion because it is a fucking cop-out. And if you use it too much, it ruins your movie. I'm talking to you, Peter Jackson. <laughs> Don't use slow motion so much in your movies. It ruins. I mean, Lord of the Rings is full of those slow motion and they drive me nuts because it's unnecessary in the moment. Uh, and I think it's a cop-out when directors use it. And when, they, when you use it correctly like McTiernan does here it elevates your film it accentuates the positivity of your film this is really Bruce Willis <laughs> he is awesome. padded up on his back he's padded up both to protect him from the impact but also to protect him from the heat he's like heat shielded oh yeah as he jumps off this roof it's a 25 foot fall <sighs> onto an airbag what they said, and I don't, you know, sometimes I, I read things or I hear things and I kind of not sure if I believe them. Yeah. They said this was his first day of shooting. Oh my God. I just can't imagine wow. you doing this kind of a stunt with your actor on the first day for, for all sorts of reasons. Yeah. One of them is totally mercenary. If you injure your actor on day one, you're fucked. Really you know, <laughs> injure them on the last day of the shooting. Really <laughs> um, the chances you take. The explosion drove him farther forward than it, they expected. Oh, God. So he hit the edge of the airbag on a 25-foot fall and rolled off onto the concrete. They thought he had died. Of course! That's why I was like, first day? Yeah, no shit. Um, they, they did do a huge explosion on top of the Fox building. They had one camera set up five miles away to view it, but the main explosion is actually a miniature. 
Yeah. And then John goes down. And if this wasn't enough, I mean, that's good enough climactic moment for any movie. Just that explosion shot. But now he's hanging by the hose outside a window. We see his bloody foot against the glass and he's kicking the glass with the bloody foot. I mean, this is amazing. And then pushes himself back, fires breaking the glass and she crashes through the window. This is amazing, but John, this is not enough because now the the fire hose wheel falls off and starts pulling him back through the open window. And his face, (laughs) it's so great that McTiernan does the close-up in his face when he realizes what's happening. Just the eyes open, and then he spins back around in the desperation of untying that. And dude, as a guy who is afraid of heights, like watching that carpet start to slip out the front of that window, I I lose my... mind every time that's that part of the scene happens because i'm just like oh my god 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 and i think what part of what makes it so great is it's comparatively quiet yes is we have these big explosions and gunfire and crashing through the window and all that stuff is loud and now you have the and it's slow yeah the slow quiet inevitable pull out the window yeah is scary and we're still not done because now he gets up and he's in the waterfall, and this totally looks like out of Apocalypse Now. I totally see the jungle sort of look to it. Yeah, it's true. also very clearly a stuntman in this shot. Oh yeah, you're right. Um, and the now, hair is different. <laughs> now the helicopter <laughs> goes by and explodes, <laughs> and John is screaming. And then from Dwayne, gonna need some more FBI guys, I guess. <laughs> I, I wrote, you almost like him here. Yeah, look, they gave him two really good lines at yeah. the end of this movie, man. That's one of them. That's for sure. Uh, this, the production designer, his favorite moment is that the elevator beeps before it explodes. <laughs> hey, fucking Argyle sees an ambulance pulling out of a truck. By the way, there was no way they could fit the ambulance in the truck. They got the ambulance <laughs> and the truck. And then they had this whole thing planned out. They're like, we can't get that truck in that ambulance or that ambulance in that truck. And so they had, it's all faked to make that look like that's happening. (laughs) Okay. John hears Holly and he checks his clip and it's empty. And he looks at his uh, other clip for his handgun. He's got two bullets Mm -hmm. and there's at least three terrorists. Yeah. And he looks over and sees a cart with some Christmas tape and we hear Christmas music. Mm Mm-hmm. I love, by the way, Argyle's stealth limo as it sneaks up <laughs> on the ambulance. Yeah, like it's a Prius limo. It's a Prius limo. You can't hear it at all. Yeah, it's a th- and cars don't sneak <laughs> until they're early right, until they're electric. Yeah. Um, and then he crashes the car into the ambulance, runs up, punches Theo in the face. Apparently, he really hit him. Really? Yeah, he really Shit. hit the actor. Yeah. Oh, wow. It's totally satisfying, though. Great hero moment for him. And the way he does with shaking of the hand and he's like almost self-satisfied grin that he's been helping being that he was able to help in some way in the situation. Absolutely. John knocks out one of the terrorists with the butt of his gun. The bonds go flying and he yells. Such a great shot, man. Holding on to that machine gun silhouetted back there and dirty as hell. And Hans pulls Holly out from behind something and puts a gun at her with he's backlit. There's sparks everywhere. By the way, John McTiernan was really nervous about this scene because he's like, this is such a cliche. 
Yeah. This is the bad guys got a gun to the girl and now the good guys got a, you know, and, and what's so funny, I never thought of this as a cliche, even though it mm-hmm. is because mm-hmm. it's so damn well done. Uh, it's a Western moment. You became hey, motherfucker. This is a showdown. Yeah. This is a showdown. hundred percent. That's exactly, of course, that's exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. I think that Bonnie Bedelia's performance when she sees John McClane mm. and sees what has happened to him in the last yeah. few hours is great. The intake of breath that she has in that moment is great. It's subtle, yeah. but it's, it's effective and it's powerful. Totally. Because she, she, she loves him, right? Yeah. And to see how decimated he is physically, she just has to consume that for a second. Yeah. It's so great. The line, Hi, honey. that's a Bruce Willis idea. <laughs> that's great. And he's limping forward and says, Might you have to nuke the whole building, Hans? And now we finally hear what the fucking plan is. Well, when you steal $600, you can't just disappear. When you steal $600 million, they will find you unless they think you're already dead. Put down the gun. And he does. And Holly's reaction to him putting down that gun is, yeah. we've lost. It's over. Yeah. You know? Oh, she has that in that audible. Oh, you got me. Still the cowboy, Mr. McLean. Americans all alike. Well, this time John Wayne does not walk off into the sunset with Grace Kelly. It's Gary Cooper, asshole. Even in 1988, uh, Steve, that offended me. And even in as a Western fan, I was like, is that not right? And then, of course, it was perfect. Setup. You know, it's funny. I don't think I had not seen High Noon at this point. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, okay. I saw it yeah. later. I, High Noon, for some reason, I don't think I saw it till I did the DVD, like in the late mm. 90s. Right, right. Um, uh, which is probably, I think it's like in our first 10 episodes is High Noon. Yeah, yeah. Uh, right. It's a really good movie. You made a pretty good cowboy yourself, Hans. And if you watch Bonnie Bedelia, she knows John. Yeah. She starts to suspect that something is up. Yeah. What was it you said to me before? Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. <laughs> Bruce Willis's laugh. <laughs> His maniacal around-the-bend laugh. Maniacal around-the-bend exhausted laugh. It's yeah. perfect. I think this is right on the edge of not working. Yes, Yes. But it does work and they all start to laugh and the camera, which is behind John McClane, moves down and we see that gun taped to his back. And again, there's so many moments. I remember being in the theater and just going, yes! (laughs) (laughs) This is so well planted. It's so subtle. You don't expect it. And at this moment during the laughing, Holly gets it. Yeah. And he yells, (laughs) and she hits his gun hand just as John opens fire, even does the little blow the smoke off the gun. Happy trails, Hans. But Hans is holding on to Holly and he goes through the window. John runs to her and Hans is holding on by the watch. The relics that Ellis gave her. And it couldn't be more symbolic of her life here is what's keeping them apart is what keeping John McClane. The thing that came between them is this life. And the Rolex is the symbol of that life. And they have to shed the the barrier between them in order to come back together to save Holly's life. Let me tell you something. In 1988, I fucking knew that. Yeah. So I was blown away recently when I saw articles in 2020 or in 2021 of, of these websites who said, Oh, did you miss this in die hard? You missed that. The watch was who the, Fuck this. How do you miss that? It is so obvious when everything in this film is a plant. Nothing is wasted in this film, which is what makes it a classic film. It qualifies for classic 
because nothing is wasted here. Everything is a plant that pays off down the road. And the watch is almost one of the first plants in the movie. And mm-hmm. it's all paid up all the way at the end. So here's what I'll say about it is like, I don't like things where you have to get the symbolism to like the movie. Yeah. So I think that what makes this so good is that it's a great action moment. Yes. Is that I don't need to understand the symbolism in order to love this moment. You're absolutely right. You know, mm-hmm. but think if you think about it a little further, it just makes it better. Yeah. The shot of Alan Rickman looking up in <laughs> slow motion yep. and the gun slowly coming into frame. Yep. Cause the, and, and this is the moment of like Hans knows he's dead. Yeah. And Hans is like, with the last thing, with my last breath, you know, it's, it's, it's fucking Ahab. You know, I spit yeah. my last breath at thee. You know, yeah. that's the moment. He is going to fucking kill John McClane, mm-hmm. even though that means he's going to drop to his death. Yeah. Yeah. And just at that last moment, we get the watch, and in slow motion, Hans falls in one of the greatest stunt facial expression moments of all time. So many things about this. Go ahead. The first one is, is that he's falling so fast and that way the shot is set up, they had to rack focus with him to keep him in focus as long as possible. Mm. It is too, and and they're shooting, I think at 270 frames a second, which is really, really, really slow motion. It wasn't possible for a human to rack focus at the right speed. So this is actually a computer controlled rack focus that's programmed with 33 and a third feet per second per second acceleration for falling. You know what I mean? Like we know how fast things fall. And so it is computer rack focus that is doing this. Mm. Yes, this is really Alan Rickman doing a high fall. Yes. There are so many rumors about what happened here. There are a lot of rumors that says that Alan Rickman didn't know he was actually going to do the fall and John McTiernan just dropped him. That is bullshit. (laughs) That is not true. Alan Rickman, they asked him, hey, do you want to do this? Totally expecting that Alan Rickman would say, no way. Yeah. And he said, sure, I'll do it. And it's his first movie. And he agreed to do it. So he knew he was going to fall. Right. The second rumor, and by the way, it's like a 25 foot fall. It's not yeah. a, it's not an 80, it's not really following from a 30 story building. Right. There are also a lot of rumors that said McTiernan said he would count to three and drop him on three, but instead he dropped him on two. And that is why Alan Rickman has that facial expression. That might be true. Alan Rickman says he has no memory of that. He thinks he got dropped on three. <laughs> so, so it might be that Alan Rickman's misremembering it, or it might right. be, or it might be that this is just a rumor that got made up about dropping him on three. Right. On two. And uh, they did a second take. Ah, see? So he did it again. Yeah. The, what we have in the movie is the first take. Ah, okay. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. And then we get one more line from Dwayne. Well, I hope that's not a hostage. <laughs> it's so funny because remember, he'd been like, oh, it's probably some stockbroker. Yeah. Uh, you know, but now he actually cares. Yeah. He says he's hope it's not a hostage. Yeah. By the way, what we see in the wide shot is a stuntman. He's falling on what's called a descender, which means he's on a wire that's controlling the rate of his fall. That's good. um, Rather than just doing a free fall. Yeah. And which is why he falls. We don't actually see him hit the ground because he never does hit the ground because he's actually on a wire. And then John kisses Holly in a totally deserved bloody final moment kiss at the (laughs) end of an action movie. It's later. It's outside. 
paper is falling down everywhere, which I think is just a great touch. Yeah. The whole area is wrecked. There's all sorts of fire everywhere. All of this, this whole sequence at the end was all shot in a weekend. So it's two nights that they shot this. They had to have everything cleaned up and pristine Monday morning, 8 a.m. when work started. Because Fox is a working building. Right, right. That's just amazing. And we see Holly and John... John's limping out. He's wearing like a fireman's jacket. And then he sees Al. Mm. It's all perfectly shot. Yeah. They take a they take their time with it. We see them smile. Al starts laughing. I have no idea why Al is standing still and making the wounded guy with blood with glass <laughs> at his feet walk to him. <laughs> like, Al, why didn't you walk to John? Yeah. But filmically, it's great. <laughs> they hug and laugh. <laughs> Also, I go, man, he hits him pretty hard on the shoulder that he has a bullet wound in. <laughs> Again, it's okay. And, and I, I would say this, the hugging between Roy, uh, oh, Roy, I mean, uh, John McClane and uh, and uh, Reginald Johnson's character, it's just this shade of up to the line of romance. Like, yeah. that's what I would say. I guess bromance, you would, you would use that term because... They're genuinely happy to meet each other, genuinely happy to express relief that they both survived this. Of course, he was in less peril, Reginald Bell Johnson, but you never know yeah. what's going to happen. But he cared about John and he was worried about John. And so there was there's that moment of, exp- of like letting that out in an emotional way. Men hugging each other. 1988, ladies and gentlemen, this is this film is like so great. At, as Steve said, she'd like to be one of the first films that shatters the idea of toxic masculinity and you see this open expression between two men there's not the pat on the back there is the punch in the shoulder but that's more of a kind of like reclaiming a little bit of the manhood but in that moment of hugging each other it is uh two men are just so so uh relieved to be alive and relieved that the other one is alive it's great agreed and i i think we feel that these guys are now going to be friends for the rest of their lives oh a thousand percent. Yeah. A thousand percent. And then John is laughing and crying and he says, Al is my wife, Holly. Holly McClain. It makes it makes me cry. It really does. Yeah, it's a really good moment. I, I think we feel just through the use of him saying Gennaro mm. and her saying McLean that they've resolved the issues in their marriage. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Even and again, this is why having sequels is tough because yeah. you can't because you can't recreate this. You know what yep. I mean? Like we want, like no, they resolved it. They're going to be okay. Hello, Holly. You got yourself a good man. You take good care of him. I want you to watch Bonnie Bedelia's reaction to those words and how she looks at John in that mm. moment. Mm. Fantastic performance. Yeah. And again, right as we're in this moment, <laughs> up comes Dwayne Robinson. You know, chewing out John McClane. Yeah. And just as we're in the moment where John McClane is about to hit Deputy Chief of Police Dwayne Robinson, we hear a scream. And Carl appears with the big gun coming. You you could see they were probably taking him out as a wounded hostage or something. He's somehow hiding the gun under a a sheet. How does that happen? How does he hide the gun? I I don't want to know. Seems fairly difficult. The music builds up. It's really intense. You want to know how they where this music came from? Maybe you already knew. No, no. Where? 
they did not like the music um, that they got from Cayman. Oh, Michael Cayman. Okay. And they just didn't work and didn't work. And they were literally right at the mix. They're right at the end. And they're just, McTiernan just went, you know what? That music we tempt with was better. And this is what you do sometimes when you're editing. Mm -hmm. You don't have your score yet. You just bring in some music from other sources just in order to cut the film. And they had tempt this with the score from a little movie called Aliens. Oh, wow. And it is the moment where the climax where Ripley faces the queen in the loader. Mm. And so they called up James Horner and they called up the people that had the right to aliens and said, hey, could we use this? And so the climactic moment of Die Hard is the same music as the climactic wow. moment of Aliens. That's great. And Carl lowers his gun and aims and John McClane is dead to rights, huddling there with Holly. And then we hear a gunshot. And we have a shot of the barrel of a gun and we rack focus and there is Al. It's fantastic, man. And the sound yeah. of the gunshots is, is it's not to overwhelm you, but it's to, sh to radiate power. You know, it's effective in the great sound work by the, the Foley people there, there in that moment because you can feel that, you know. It's funny Fish that you mentioned that because Cameron Chapman, one of our patrons, says, mm. thank you for covering my favorite Christmas movie. Seriously, <laughs> though, I think one thing that gets overlooked in Die Hard is the amazing sound design throughout oh. the film. An yeah. example is the gunshot where Sergeant Powell fires his gun. <laughs> Do you guys agree? Cameron! And Cameron. I, I have I've not looked at any of these questions ahead of time. I didn't. They just come up naturally as we're talking. So, yeah. Uh, yes, Cameron, we 100% agree. The sound design yeah. is absolutely fantastic, top to bottom. And yeah. yes, this gunshot, which is, sounds like a freaking cannon and probably is, mm. is absolutely fantastic in the way they handle it. And again, it's a perfect plant and payoff. And one that it's it, it, this is how great payoffs work is that it's one that you didn't ever see coming. And as soon as it happens, you go, of course, how did I not see that coming? Yeah. And that's yeah. what this is. I didn't see it coming at all when I first saw it. And it's so satisfying. And, and again, what makes it even better is the emotional connection to the last time he fired a gun. Mm -hmm. He shot a kid. Right. And if you watch as the camera pushes in on Reginald Val Johnson and you look at his face, yeah. that is the performance of a guy who's going thing through a lot of stuff. Yeah. And then just in this moment, we interrupt <laughs> that moment because the limo crashes through the gates. And Al is ready to fire again. Yeah. And McLean stops him and says, this one's with me. <laughs> and if that moment were enough, we're going to interrupt that because up comes our reporter, William Atherton. <laughs> Mr. McLean, Mr. McLean, now that it's all over after this incredible ordeal, what are your feelings? It's a perfect amount of pause. <laughs> and then. And it's a, it is a power punch. Yeah. Like Holly knows how to hit a dude. Oh yeah. And. <laughs> The button of, he turns to the camera and says, Did you get that? <laughs> uh, so good. The last line of the film is one that is so on the edge of cheesy. Yeah. But yeah. I'm okay with it, which is Argyle as he loads them into the limo. I can't imagine, by the way, the police would let these two people leave the scene of this crime. Oh, no. They're, they're going to debrief you and have all kinds of conversations. <laughs> no. Yeah, exactly. Plus, John really needs to go to the hospital. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, let's be real clear about him. But it's they get into the limo and Argyle says, This is their idea of Christmas. I got to be here for New Year's. <laughs> which is essentially saying, we got a sequel coming. 
<laughs> and then the camera pushes in on the kiss through the back window, and we hear, let it snow, as they drive away through the paper snowing down into the wreckage. <laughs> and that, of course, is the end of Die Hard. So good. It really is. There are a lot of movies we've done that I uh, admire for all sorts of reasons. There are very few that I felt I could turn on and watch immediately after doing a week of research and recording it mm. or editing it. And Die Hard is one that's like, I watch this right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they began filming in November of 87. It finished in March of 88. It's a little hard to see what the budget was. It, most things say it was around 28 million, but some other things I've seen say as high as 35 million. Mm. When Michael Kamen saw the first cut, he thought the movie was weak. He, he said, I th it seems like a story about a phenomenal bad guy who makes John McClane look like kind of a wimp. That's how Michael Kamen felt about the first cut. Fox had very low expectations. Yeah. The big movies that were expected to do well were Crocodile Dundee 2, Rambo 3, also coming out was Coming to America and Who Framed, Ro Framed Roger Rabbit. Yeah. Um, the movies that were coming out right at the same time as Die Hard was Red Heat and Clint Eastwood's Deadpool and Big Top Pee Wee. Oh, my God. All of which they thought were going to kill Die Hard. Everybody thought they'd paid Bruce Willis way too much. The movie Sunset had just come out earlier that oh, year and totally yeah. bombed. That was a horrible movie. When the trailer played, the first trailer played in movie theaters, and Bruce Willis appeared on the screen, people booed and groaned. <laughs> Some theaters started pulling the trailer because it was getting what? such bad reactions. Wow. Newsweek called Bruce Willis the most unpopular actor ever to get $5 million. <laughs> and now Fox starts to get scared. And so they changed the entire marketing campaign. They remove Bruce Willis's face from everything. Wow. They make wow. his name really, really small, just in the, you know, in the very bottom mm. of the posters. And they make it just a big poster of the building. They're just going to advertise the building and not advertise Bruce Willis at all. <laughs> the movie comes out. I think it opens number three behind Coming to America and Roger Rabbit. Yeah. It gets mixed reviews. People liked Alan Rickman in the direction. A lot of people panned Bruce Willis's performance and the plot. And then the next week, it goes down to number four. It's beaten by Cocktail. Tom <laughs> Cruise. Tom Cruise. Yeah. yeah. But then it goes back up to number three. And that's the key, is that mm -hmm. three weeks in, it goes up. It never makes it to number one, but it spends 10 weeks bouncing around the top five. Yeah. So it's number two, it's number three, it's number four, it's number three, it's number, you know, it keeps bouncing around. Yep. Um, it was one of the top 10 movies that year. By the way, it destroyed Red Heat and Deadpool. They weren't of even, course. I mean, nothing, nothing anywhere close. It grossed $140 million, which is a huge amount of money in 88. Yeah. Die Hard was nominated for four Oscars, visual effects, sound mixing, editing, and sound editing. It didn't win any of them. Wow. One of the biggest supporters of the cinephiles, Brendan Marr, asks, mm. do you feel that Alan Rickon's performance as Hans Gruber was worthy of an Academy Award nomination? 100% yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Who was nominated? In 1988, well, a, right? Yeah, I'm looking it up right now. The people that he was nominated against is Alec Guinness from Little Dorit, Martin Landau from Tucker, River Phoenix from Running on Empty, Dean Stockwell, Married to the Mob, oh. and Kevin Klein from A Fish Called Wanda, who won. Right. I think 
he, I love Kevin Klein's performance in a fish called Wanda. It's fantastic. I, I think I take Alan Rickman and die hard over any of the other people for me. I'd have to agree with you. And I would I put him above Dean Stockwell as a nomination, uh, even above the great Alec Guinness and little Dorrit. Yep. I mean, that's little Dorrit. What the fuck? Yeah. Martin Landau's great in Tucker. Yes. But, that's why I didn't take him off. Yeah. But, but nobody's talking about Tucker it, the way they're talking about Hans Gruber and Die Hard. Hans Gruber yeah. is a villain for the fucking ages. Yeah. So I absolutely should think he should have been nominated. Matthew Grieber, who's both my old friend and a great supporter of the show, says, if Die Hard never existed, two questions. One, it's 2021 and a hot new director wants to make it. He says, forget about casting. How would it be notably different? Hmm. I'll tell you the first one. One of the biggest changes for all of film and movies made today is cell phones. Mm. Cell phones ruin everything. Half of the things that happen in Die Hard are about communication. Is John can't reach the police. If he does talk on the radio, people are overhearing him. The police could overhear him. Uh, Hans can overhear him. All that stuff goes away with a whole bunch of other stuff that goes away if you just have a cell phone in your pocket. Yeah. You know, so yeah. that's a that's a really big one. What do you think would be different? If we did it now? Yeah. I don't know. Well, um, I, I think yeah, post, post September 11th, all reactions to terrorism are different. Right. That's a great point. You yeah, don't we, get you Dwayne don't, Robinson yeah. post September yeah. 11th. Uh, nor do you get Johnson and Johnson. No. Uh, in any way, shape or form. But I think you get a more active female character. That's yeah. for sure. I think yeah. that's the change that you definitely would see nowadays is that Holly Gennaro is way more active than she is in the movie, even though she's pretty great for what she she's gets to great. do. She's, I think, a more active part of the situation. So they're almost working in tandem. She, she there closer to Hans, him up there trying to figure this out. So I think they would work more closer in tandem in that way. Um, yeah, that's what I think would be different as well. The other question uh, from Matt Grieber is almost the same as uh, another patron, uh, John Getz, who asks, mm. what has been your favorite Die Hard butt movie? Was it Die Hard but on a submarine or Die Hard <laughs> on a bus or <laughs> or the White House of Olympus has fallen or another? Uh, What's your favorite gee, one? Jesus, that's tough. Um, I, I think Die Hard on a bus. Speed is, speed speed? is really good. Yeah, speed is great. It's You're not right deep, about that. but it's good. Yeah. What's the what's Die Hard on a on a sub? Is that Crimson? Well, Tide? he actually wrote uh, Die Hard on a submarine of under siege. That's not on a submarine. It's on a like a is it? It's not a battleship. Yeah. It's like an aircraft carrier or, or a, yeah. a destroyer or something. Yeah. I yeah. haven't watched Under Siege in a real real long time. <laughs> My yeah. guess is it doesn't hold up that well. And what? I've never Andy seen does. any of the Olympus has fallen movies. You're missing out, son. That's what I've heard. I like those movies. I, I own all three of them. There's also a Die Hard on Air Force One with the president, with Harrison oh. Ford. Well, you know what? That's my choice. That's my choice. I love Air Force One. I haven't seen it in a long time. I, I saw that. That came out when I was in film school, when I was in a very negative space about <laughs> all films. Maybe I need to give it another chance. I didn't like it so much at the time. Get off of my plane. Um, it's tough for me to give my final thoughts on Die Hard. Okay. But here, here's what I will say. I said this when we did it the first time. I'm going to say it again now. I think, first of all, I think this is damn close to a perfect film. Mm -hmm. It's why we had to spend so much time going through it. There were a few little quibbles you and I had of maybe yeah. things that didn't quite make sense. But top to bomb, bottom, the performances, the script, moment to moment, the camera work, the editing, the music, the sound design, 
every single moment is really good. It's absolutely beautifully constructed. It is a perfect example of why I think on the cinephiles, you and I don't go, oh, the dramas are the really important mm. films. Uh, perfect, beautiful craftsmanship. I admire just as much in an action movie as I do in Citizen Kane or anything else. This is a great, great film. And this is one of the top on my list of great movies that ruined Hollywood because this is the archetypal action film. And this is a film that you see copied over mm -hmm. and over and over again. And what they don't copy is John McClane in the bathroom? Is John McClane talking to himself? Mm. It's the humanity. It's not the big special effects and the stunts and the action sequences, which are great and mm -hmm. totally admirable. That's what makes, those might make this a great action movie, but they don't make this a great film. And it's yeah. the heart that makes it a great film. And so we get a lot of movies that try to be diehard, but are really just pale cardboard imitations. Those are my make an thoughts. excellent point, Steve. Those are great final thoughts because even the its own franchise didn't oh, yeah. bring that heart back in any of the installments. There's no moment remotely close to that in any of the installments of the uh, franchise. And I think they eventually divorced them, uh, him and Holly, or Holly mm, died, something so. like that. I don't know. Uh, which I thought was terrible to do because and that's where the ego of Bruce Willis comes in, and it's all about Bruce Willis. It's ridiculous. Um, well, My can, final can, thought. Sorry, sorry yeah, can I ahead. say one thing just on that? And then I'll, sure. I'll give you no, another moment to contemplate your final thoughts. Oh, sure. Is that the fact that they have Bruce Willis, like, I don't remember what happens in five, but he's like jumping on an airplane or That's, hanging yeah, from helicopters. Like the dude is afraid of heights. Like right. the fact that the the one of the key things about his humanity, they just jettison to mm -hmm. make him exactly the kind of hero that he's not supposed to be. Right. That just right. sucks. And when they talk about doing a prequel, I'm like, what's the prequel? If this this whole thing is supposed to have been a unique moment in his life, uh, that's what made it great. If you go to a prequel and he's been surviving these kinds of instances for a long time, then it doesn't really have any kind of weight. You you really undercut how genuinely unique uh, Die Hard is. Uh, my final thoughts are this. Um, classics are classics, ladies and gentlemen. And even in the 80s, even if they're made in the 80s, they're classics. You know, some people are like, oh, modern classics. Classics are classics, okay? And I hate to break it to you, but as Steve said earlier, I think in the second, oh, no, wait, somebody said that the other day. I'm sorry about this. Last night on my Outlaw Nation show, uh, my guests, Paul Preston, Adam Witt said, Cary Grant uh, is as old uh, to us in the 80s as Harrison Ford is now to that generation. Totally. So they're classics. If Bringing Up Baby is an effing classic, Die Hard is now an effing classic. Whether we, our generation wants to accept it or not, it's a classic in the definition of that. And it is in every way, shape, and form a classic. From the acting, to the uh, music, to the script, uh, to the construction of the film, to the direction, to the cinematography, all the way to the end. It is a classic in every way, shape, or form. Because Steve said there, uh, so many uh, studios have come along and tried to copy that formula, but have never gotten it to the way Die Hard did. And there's a reason it stands out above all the other action movies because it is the quintessential action movie. Um, and uh, those are classics. So I don't know. Everyone said a million things about Die Hard. There's nothing new I can offer you except that when you're making a great action movie, don't ever skip the heart. The heart is always what elevates something from just a fun action movie to a complete other realm that makes us connect with the main character. Yeah, Vin Diesel can talk about family and all that, and it's fun to make fun of that and whatever, but 
this is this is real and this is honesty. And if we had more action films like this, I think the genre itself would have less of a stigma of being throwaway or fun or not that you don't have to use your brain that much. And actually would be a place where some of the greats would come and create some fantastic uh, work uh, themselves. I couldn't agree more. And of course, we always want to hear what you think. Do a search for The Cinephiles on Facebook. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on YouTube, on Google Play. Please, please, please leave those reviews on Apple Podcasts. I know we say it every week, but we really mean it. It still helps the show a lot. If you leave comments on YouTube, we love interacting with you there. You can follow the show at Cine underscore files on Twitter, the Cinephiles podcast on Instagram. You can follow me at SR Morris on Twitter at SR Morris one on Instagram. You can also uh, support the show by going to patreon.com slash the Cinephiles. And as you've heard through this episode, we'll give you advanced notice of some of our episodes and you can send in your questions to be answered right here on the air. And if you want to listen to my other podcast if you're a star trek fan check out enterprise incidents we're going through every single episode of the original series john how would people reach you yeah you can always find me at the roca says on twitter and on instagram if you want to come and hang out with me on twitch is i play video games and host uh, watch alongs of football games and basketball games come over there the outlaw nation all one word lowercase and if you want to go and hang out on my youtube channel see all the stuff i'm doing there reaction reviews pre-produced videos uh youtube.com slash john roca says uh and of course the geek buddies uh, and the top 10 podcasts that are out there for you all to listen and enjoy as well Thank you so much to everyone who suggested that we redo yeah. Die Hard. I'm so glad we did. I can't wait to find out next year what early movie of the cinephiles you want us to redo next. Yeah. But for now, that's it for this week. We will see you next time for another great film on the cinephiles. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.